Hello and welcome to Made With, a RISD student's guide to stuff. My name is Ben and I will be your host for this episode. In this session, we will dive into the world of earth and material and its significance culturally, specifically in the world of art and design. Many of us have learned about soil and rocks for as long as we can remember. In secondary school, weeks of class are dedicated to the classifications of rocks and minerals. We further learn about lands conquered all over the world, from the Crusaders a thousand years ago in Europe to the more recent westward expansion, also known as Manifest Destiny, in the U.S. However, most of these units have left out the importance of earth and soil as design and building materials. This podcast will jump into the world of earth construction and design, along with significant cultural practices and rich history of these ancient materials. The three categories of rocks and minerals are sedimentary, metamorphic, and igneous. Soil is then formed of fine rock particles mixed with air, water, and particles from dead plant and animal matter. This dirt is then categorized into six categories. Clay, sandy, silty, peaty, chalky, and loamy. These materials are found all over the earth, from deep within the earth's core, all the way up to the surface we traverse. These materials also act quite differently from one another, with a wide range of characteristics. For example, loamy soil is structurally sound and has adequate drainage, whereas clay is very unstable and non-porous. In fact, many buildings historically have sunk into the ground or fallen over due to an unstable clay foundation. A famous example of this is the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy, which after 200 years of construction began to lean due to its shallow foundation and unstable soil contents. Some of these materials also hold powerful cultural and ritualistic powers as well. In Oklahoma, the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, who have inhabited and cultivated this land for thousands of years, find a deep spiritual connection to the red pigment of the local dirt and rock. It is said that the soil and their people are connected, that their embodied pasts and traumas are held in the earth, that the people and pigment are one. Another earth-related indigenous practice is the ritual of mound building. These mounds, which appear as unsuspecting hills, were erected for burial purposes and as an intercommunal means of sharing. When one member of a tribe would visit another community, with them they would bring a basket of soil from their homeland. This basket was usually no more than one cubic foot of soil. This basket of soil was then placed and added upon as more and more travelers and friends visited the tribe. As you can imagine, thousands of people made the journey with loads of dirt to contribute to the construction of the mounds. That is thousands of soil types from all over the continent combining at the site of one mound. These mounds existed all over the plains of the U.S., but many were tragically flattened and demolished during European colonization and westward expansion in the U.S. Lastly, earthen materials have been used by indigenous communities for home building and construction. Before the invention of air conditioning and manufactured insulative envelopes, vernacular architecture was widespread. Vernacular architecture can be defined as a type of local or regional construction using traditional materials and resources from the area where the building is located. Because of this, the architecture is closely related to its context and is aware of the specific geographic features and cultural aspects of its surroundings being strongly influenced by them. 
For this reason, they are unique to different places in the world, becoming even a means of reaffirming an identity. Mud and soil were used as an integral part of construction in many parts of the U.S. The Navajo indigenous tribe used mud and soils locally sourced to clad their huts. This kept them warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Similar technology has evolved into further westernized forms, such as adobe brick construction in the southwest. Builders stack earthen bricks, many with infused natural fibers and a combination of clay and soil. This construction type, although mostly limited to single-story dwellings, is low-cost, energy-efficient, and extremely inexpensive to build. In recent years, technology has pushed earth as a material to its limits, with companies like Icon pioneering large-scale 3D printing using earthen materials locally sourced. In Texas, Icon and world-renowned architecture firm Bjark Ingels Group have collaborated to rebuild El Cosmico, a campground hotel in Marfa, Texas. The team plans to relocate the venue to a 62-acre plot where new architectural approaches are made possible by including advanced technologies and 3D printing elements such as domes, vaults, and parabolic forms. These forms will all be made of a mixture of clay and soil locally sourced. The innovative development will feature guest accommodation and new hospitality programming, including a pool, spa, and shared communal facilities. The project is expected to break ground in 2024. This project aims to connect the historic technology of earthen construction with the vast advances in building technology and automation. To further dive into the world of earth, please welcome to the podcast Peter Dean, professor of furniture design at RISD and RISD Architecture alumni. Peter's teachings center around sustainability, having developed the nature, culture, and sustainability concentration, along with teaching design studios focusing on biodesign, green materials and behaviors, NCSS core seminar, and comprehensive sustainability thinking. He has also helped to develop the R. Buckminster Fuller Biennial Design Science Symposium in collaboration with the Edna Lawrence Nature Lab at RISD and the Synergetics Collaborative. Hey, Peter. How are, How are you? you? Good to see you. Good to see you. How is everything? DGIF, as they say. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The first Great. thing I thought about um, when I thought about Earth as a material and uh, immediately I thought about vernacular architecture and then I thought I need to reach out to Peter, <laughs> especially after the, the NCSS course seminar. It's just you're, you're the, perfect, uh, the perfect person to chat further about this with. Well, I'm happy to. I, I think it's a uh... Uh, a burgeoning uh, topic, actually, <laughs> as we begin to do our best to mimic nature, the uh, notion that you can use local material <laughs> um, is, a, is a really uh, compelling um, argument. Definitely. With your rich background in sustainable design, what do you think of the use of these earth dirts and soils in design and construction? Well, it, it is a um, time-tested uh, indigenous uh, way of building. I mean, uh, uh, adobe actually means mud brick in Spanish, right? Um, and so you, you and the, all over Africa, you, you, you see the use of, of uh, soils to, to uh, make bricks and to uh, basically, or, or some sort of a, of a natural fibrous a plant material that is sort of the matrix, and then the mud is is uh, put up. The only, um, from, from a sustainability point of view, the fact that it's local 
and you can get all your building material out of the hole you dig for the foundation, has a lot to recommend it. However, it, the, the um, rammed earth and other earth uh, technologies require um, architectural design that respects the vulnerabilities of that material. For instance, in rammed earth, which, by the way, I just love the color of it because it's so identified with the particular place it came from. Absolutely. Uh, so that that I find very compelling, and and um, it's almost foolproof in that regard, <laughs> right? I mean, you you, you want to make something or design and build something that looks like it belongs there. Um, it's nice to know that the material you're using actually came from there. So um, it's also from an energy point of view, um, it's a lot less um, uh, sort of uh, carbon intensive uh, than, you know, cutting down a tree, milling it up, drying the, the lumber, shipping it halfway around the planet to, you know, I mean, it, it, clearly it, it's uh, local is a good thing. It requires maintenance. Uh, the actual building of a rammed earth project requires some professional know-how. Um, it's not just a bunch of earth you shovel into a form. You know, it's mixed with sand and it's mixed with um, clay. Uh, all of this stuff is, is locally sourced. Some are uh, mixing in some cement as well uh, for a more of a durable um, material at the end. Um, but cement, of course, comes with a, a huge carbon footprint. <laughs> a slew so, of other problems. Yeah, no, it's true. I guess the, one of the points to make here is that there's no free lunch. <laughs> you know, every, every material, whatever it is, has a backstory. In other words, it comes from somewhere, you utilize it, and then it usually goes somewhere. But um, rammed earth or, or earth structures are um, very much like an igloo, right? <laughs> Made entirely out of local materials, 100% recyclable, <laughs> um, and, you know, disappears when the when the thaws come right so over time a rammed earth or an earth an earthen structure will simply be absorbed back into the earth so it has all of that to recommend it absolutely you made a really interesting point about um, materials having a background and having a story um, and so i'm curious in that regard how can a designer acknowledge the deep histories carried with earth materials when working with them? Um, I ask this because in our Western Eurocentric society here in the US, I feel like we have seemingly forgotten and overlooked the practices of indigenous communities and um, vernacular architecture from the past. And so I'm, I'm curious what you think about this. Well, I think the world about this, <laughs> frankly. I mean, uh, indigenous architecture is brilliant. For the most part absolutely brilliant and it, it's um you know a long history of trial and error um and they're usually um, intensely appropriate to the lifestyle of the tribes that utilize these for instance the ogallala sioux were a nomadic tribe and their their teepees were could fold up and take with them as they went to the different either different hunting grounds or places to winter over, things like that. And other tribes that are more uh, stationary and sedentary, not sedentary, but, but you know, uh, one place, like the Southwest Indians, the uh, Navajo and the Apache and the um, various other Pueblo-dwelling um, tribes, 
all have, you know, really wonderful um, craft traditions, not just architecture, but, but um, for instance, pottery um, is just, you know, I just love the stuff personally. Um, and, you know, you, you begin to see that the aesthetics of indigenous populations, again, are locally based. They're um, uh, entirely um, appropriate to their worldview, to their uh, sort of spiritual understanding of the place they inhabit. And interestingly, when you compare that to uh, Western, um, you know, Eurocentric uh, North American invaders, if you will, <laughs> um, we, ha we have a very different and somewhat problematic uh, issue. And it it's very psychological, frankly. The indigenous people never had a separation between themselves and their place. Mm -hmm. They always considered themselves to be an integral part of nature, not something that they're simply observing or, or learning about, right? They have a much better sort of wisdom associated with learning from nature, as if nature was the, the mentor, if you will. And, and this is a, a, something that we're just beginning to, to utilize in, in our Western thinking with things like biomimicry. And, and we suddenly realize, my God, this is so profoundly more efficient. Um, and why haven't we been doing it before? Well, and a lot of indigenous cultures had uh, rites of passage, mostly for young men, uh, where they would go off into the wilderness for a period of time and and uh, subsist and return having fashioned a spear or, or some other talisman of their experience. Well, I look at that and I see the egos of these young men and everybody has one, although nobody's born with one. <laughs> Very important uh, thing Absolutely. to understand. A learned but, behavior. Yeah, but they, they return and the difference is that the ego is no longer in service solely to self but is in service to the community. And that is a very big shift. And one that we um, in the West, in America anyway, don't, I mean, we have the driver's license and we have military service and, um, you know, your first job and things like that, that are all rites of passage, but they are not sort of um, demanding psychologically of a, uh, you know, an important aspect of personal growth mm -hmm. is my slant on that yeah i i think that especially in architecture and construction it's such a material heavy industry that it's really important to do the work to dig down and, and really figure out our biases as designer as makers and just try to try to pay respects to the to the earth that we're using um especially with our with our current situation environmentally um, with the degradation of topsoil and also just thinking about the histories that every living thing carries. You never know what has happened on the land that you're using to build these structures or, or the, the forest that you've chopped down to, you know, get the timber for the next project that you build. It's, it's really a, you know, a complex it, it, situation. Real, yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it's, a, it's habitual, culturally habitual. Um, and most often earth is considered dirty. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's mm -hmm. something you keep out of your house. Yeah, if you can. Um, it's something that is uh, taken for granted. Um, I mean, you, you know, you look at the great plains of the of this country, um, millions of acres of some of the most fertile land on the planet. And when the white man arrived, there were um, 
somewhere between four and eight feet of topsoil, really rich topsoil. And um, we're both too young to remember the uh, dust bowls of the 20s and 30s. But that was a problem. They, basically, the, the earth dried out and the wind blew away the topsoil. And then, of course, the people came back in and put up or planted sort of tree windbreaks and things like this, started making sense about what they were doing. But a, a mature prairie has about, I've forgotten the actual number, somewhere between 20 and 30 um, different species of, of plants, grasses largely, each one doing something uh, interesting, mostly sequestering nitrogen and other and phosphate and, and uh, other um, sort of nutrients into the soil. And um, when the American, I mean, the, the Europeans, soon to be Americans, um, started tilling the soil, the Native Americans had a word for it. I don't remember the actual word, for I remember the translation, which means wrong side up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, it's it, it. What I love about that kind of insight is it is so bloody obvious. Absolutely, right? they knew better. Uh, yes, I would love to ask about some of the projects that you have been a part of, um, or have researched at the very least that that use this earth construction. For example, um, I know you worked closely with um, Las Gaviotas in South America, and that there was some some interesting use of earth and um, subterranean structure there as well. If you wanna, if you wanna touch on that. Sure, sure. Um, well, th this um, Las Gaviotas uh, is described by the UN as a model for third world rural development. It is an exceptional place um, founded uh, by a man named Paolo Lugari, whom I describe as a modern day Bucky Fuller. He's a comprehensive thinker and um, he's, he's really, he's brilliant. You know, the, the um, interesting thing about its place. It's remote, very remote. It's a six-day drive on roads that are roads in name only from wow. Bogota, which are only passable during the dry season. Uh, and even then, it's a it's a chore. So what does that do? That means you, you, you don't have ready access to replacement parts and um, other sort of technological um, sort of emergency items, if you will. And the, the building, the several um, architectural innovations they developed there, um, and one was this um, means of air conditioning. If you're a surgeon, or more importantly, if you're the person having your tummy cut open, <laughs> there are two things you don't want in your surgical suite. One is high temperature and the other is high humidity, because that promotes microbial growth. And that's like if you could go into an operating theater in the U.S., it's freezing in there. <laughs> I mean, it is frigid and it's also dry as a bone. But anyway, it, it's uh, it's that way for a reason. And so how do you do that with, you know, no moving parts and just letting nature do its thing? Well, two meters down anywhere on the planet, really, the temperature of the soil is roughly 50 to 60 degrees. So that's a, a heat sink, basically. Um, and it's, a, it's a, a way to take hot air and cool it down. And you run this through these tunnels uh, into the surgical suite, this one end of the hospital. And um, you, the temperature is about 20 to 30 degrees cooler than the outside ambient temperature. And this is 
no fossil fuels, no moving parts, nothing. This is simply what the site gives you. The other issue, of course, is how do you get the humidity out of that air? And what they did was, was drive waste aluminum shafts down into the soil below the, the tunnel and um, let it protrude up into the tunnel. And that gave a cool surface to condense the moisture out of the air. So the, the, the tunnels are about 50 yards in length, each one, and there were six of them. Um, and the, the, there was a big earthen funnel facing the, the uh, prevailing wind so that it, you get a push. And then you have the chimneys at the top of the building. You know, they get sun on them. They're painted black and they get hot and they create a pull. So you get this constant flow, number one, of fresh air, but air conditioned air. And again, no moving parts, nothing to maintain. <laughs> you know, it's brilliant in its simplicity. Nature's not benign. <laughs> I'm I'm curious. I have I have one more question. You know, one of the greatest parts about about earthen construction is that the resource and the materials are on site. And so you know exactly what you have to work with and it's it's a really great way to recycle any of the dirt and earth that you're scooping out for a foundation as you said earlier. But now we're seeing advances in in technology and, and building software. Companies like Icon for example um, that are going out with these large-scale new 3D printers and creating all of these these 3D printed um, earthen structures. And so I wonder I wonder what you think about that kind of advancement um, of construction. This I think is a wonderful uh, manifestation of this technology, and it's going to get better. And it's going to and the, and the the feedstock. You know, right now most of the stuff at RISD is plastic and some one sort or another. I had a student, a grad student in ID, about five years ago who hooked up his plant to a 3D printer and had and had the plant follow the sun across those window. Right? Yeah. And it ended up um, making a handle for a spoon. <laughs> wow. It was very wow. I, I just thought it was a wonderful concept, if nothing else. But it actually worked. Uh, it was not something that you could commercialize necessarily because it took forever to make a little... <laughs> You know, a little spoon. Yeah. yeah. This notion, this notion of of harnessing, um, you know, sort of uh, a plant's photosynthetic needs, and and be able to extract from that some some measure of form. I think is a pretty well. I thought it was a fascinating uh, idea. I, I haven't really ex explored or even even heard about three D printing of of uh, rammed earth. Um, I, I mean, they must be mixing it with some sort of hardener or something that, that, that is uh, creating the, the actual structure. I think, I think in a lot of these projects, there's mixing of um, cement or at least, at least other synthetic fibers to kind of um, give the material a little, bit of, a little bit of tensile strength. Right. And, you know, it, uh, that's another thing about... about um, sort of evaluating various technologies. I mentioned before that, that every material, I don't care what it is, comes with a backstory, right? And, and there's a flow. It comes from somewhere, you utilize it, and it goes somewhere. And a designer's responsibility is for all three aspects of that that trip, if you will, that path. So I, you know, I, I you know, I'm, I'm sort of, um, I guess, an optimistic skeptic <laughs> uh, when I think of, of, of new things. I really want to evaluate their their impacts. Um, and it's not just the, the ease of building. 
um, it, it has a lot more to the to get a comprehensive answer to, to some of these questions. I remember in class you had a, a really wonderful saying about designers, um, and I'm I'm trying to remember what it is, but it's about how we create problems or we create problems by trying to find solutions. Basically, yeah, and I think the the uh, the the underpinning of that comment is that many of the issues that we currently struggle with are the direct result of what were previously considered designed solutions, <laughs> right? And so I, one of the things I, I harp on in my teaching is really, how do you make a good and enduring and non-injurious design decision, right? How do you do that? Yeah. And I think that that is a, requires a comprehensive approach um, to understanding impacts, understanding the flow of, of material, you know, and the, and the indoor air quality, <laughs> all of it. Just want to say thank you so much for joining me for this, this podcast episode. Well, I, I'm, I was happy to do it, and, and uh, I look forward to seeing the, the, the collection, if you will, of all the yeah. podcasts put together. Should be interesting. Thank you so much. You're welcome. The world of earth construction is clearly vast and much unexplored. I look forward to diving into these new technologies myself, while also honoring the rich past of earth ceremonies, ritualistic practices, and vernacular constructions. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Made With. I am your host for this session, Ben Rowland, signing off. <laughs>